Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Chapter 11, verse 26 of 2 Samuel. It says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Psalm 51, this is the heading. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and in whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If any of you know me well or have known me long enough, you know that I love fighting. Scott didn't want to do the reading, but then I beat him up and then I made him do it. No, I'm just kidding. But I do beat up on Scott regularly just for fun. The, I love any type of fighting. I love watching fighting. I love doing fighting. I love messing with people like that. And the, my favorite type of fighting is boxing. My favorite type of fighting to watch is boxing. And one fascinating thing that I love about boxing is how technical it is. And one of the things, if you follow any boxer, any elite boxer, any elite athlete in boxing, if they start to lose a fight or let's say if they're not doing as good as they used to do, what they'll do is they'll change their trainer. And what's so fascinating to me is this elite boxer who's at the top of their level, when they change trainers, the one thing that their trainer does is makes them go back to the basics. So they teach them how to punch. They're teaching this top-level boxer how to punch again. They're teaching them how to move. And they teach them all these basic maneuvers. It's so weird to watch because I've followed a lot of boxers in my day, and I would watch these elite boxers getting taught as if they just walked into a boxing ring, like it was their first time, and they're making them step like, like little kids would when they enter into the boxing gym, little six-year-olds. They're doing the same techniques that these little kids are doing to learn boxing. And the reason being is because boxing's so technical that the basics are the most necessary thing for them to actually do good. If you can handle the basics and master the basics, that's what's going to get you to go far. And these elite boxers tend to start to forget that, and they rely more on their gifting and their athleticism rather than the basics. And the reason why I say this is because all of us have gotten into this faith, into this religion, based on these gospel truths that we are sinners in need of grace. God has been gracious to us by giving us his son, and he forgives us of all of our sin. And we're entered into a relationship with him. We're accepted by him fully based on the person and work of our Lord Jesus. And we come to him, we confess our sins, we repent, and we rejoice. We come into the faith with this, um, this understanding of the gospel, these basic truths in a sense, these simple truths and realities. But something happens along the line with a lot of us Christians. We start to forget that 
Because the very same thing that got us into this religion is the exact same thing that keeps us in this faith. Amen? But something happens along the lines where we start to change it up, where we like change up the rules and we do different things to stay in the faith. Instead of relying on the personal work of Jesus, we start to rely on ourselves. Instead of rejoicing when he's forgiven us, we condemn ourselves and think we stand condemned. Instead of embracing these things that brought us into the faith, we neglect them and cling to something else. Does that make sense? And so today my goal in sharing Psalm 51 is a hopefully just a simple message to get us back to the basics where we're trusting in the person and work of Jesus, knowing that he forgives us, and that's it, and that we're relying on that and that alone and nothing else. Amen? And I love this passage. This passage, Psalm 51, is probably the most quoted psalm in our house. I probably quote it in my prayers every single day. It's not the most sung psalm in our house. It's not the most read psalm. But this psalm is a psalm that we pray as a family and me personally, probably every day in my personal prayers because I need it every day. And so I'd, I would hope and my, I've been praying that how much it's blessed me and how much it's blessed Christians throughout the histories, that it would do the same for you, that you would grow to love this psalm and use it in your daily prayer every single day. Because if you've noticed, you know, this is going to be our last time in the Psalms for a while. But if you've noticed, the Psalms are so good because they're so diverse. And it shows like kind of the ups and downs of life. Have you experienced that as we're going through this? You know, it talks about depression. It talks about joy. It talks about sin. It talks about all these things of life. And wherever you're at, there's a Psalm for you. But what's so good about this Psalm is I know every single day we can benefit from this Psalm. It's such a blessing. So I just, I say that I want us to get back to the basics to encourage anybody that's maybe hurting or doubting or struggling to believe that they're forgiven, that this would be a psalm that you can run to and embrace knowing that God is good and he's working on you and he's there for you and he's done it visibly through the person and work of our Lord Jesus. Let us pray and then we'll jump into the message. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, we ask that you would give us what we need today. You are a provider and sustainer of our lives. You are a good father that cares for us. You are not the father that was angry for us, but your son stepped in. No, you're a father that was angry towards our sin, but loved us and cared for us and wanted us. So you did everything necessary to bring us into relationship with you and still being just still being good, still being righteous. And you did that through your plan of redemption. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your obedience to the point of death. We thank you for your obedience to your Father. We thank you for your substitutionary atoning death on the cross. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be refreshed by your atonement this morning, that you would help us to be encouraged by your atonement, that we would turn to you because you're good and you're kind, not because we're scared. It is the kindness of our Lord that leads us to repentance. Help us to turn 
because you reach your hand out. And Holy Spirit, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would please illuminate the scriptures to us, that you would please give me a gift, a manifestation of your spirit for the common good and the building up of this church and for your people, and that you would help us to hear what you want us to hear, that you would prepare our hearts, any calloused areas of our hearts, that you would soften it, not to condemn us, but to bless us and to cleanse us and to know that we're forgiven and that you have a plan for us through Jesus. So please, Holy Spirit, do what only you could do. Illuminate the scriptures, open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears. We love you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the things I love about this psalm is this psalm, we actually have history of it. We know why it's written, even in the heading. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. I think this makes it so much more meaningful, doesn't it? Like as you read that story and you heard that story, David is not just some regular guy off the streets, but David's actually the king of Israel. And if you're familiar with 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God enters into a covenant with David. Covenant with David, that he's going to establish his kingdom forever, that he's going to have his son have an eternal kingdom, that his throne is going to be an eternal throne, and he's going to have a son that rules and reigns this world, this kingdom forever. And then a few chapters down, however many years that is or months that is, we see this horrific thing that David does. This chosen guy, this anointed king, chosen by God to be this big shot, it looks like. Going to fulfill the covenant through this guy. Look what he does. He sees a woman bathing. He uses his power to get her. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant he knew that she was married, so what does he do? To hide his sin, because he did it in private. That's what God knew. He did it in private, to hide his sin. He tried to get Uriah to come and hang out with his wife to hopefully sleep with her so that it looked like Uriah got her pregnant, not him. Isn't that crazy? Imagine having that much power to be able to do something like this. How wicked that would be to be a man that takes advantage of a family, takes advantage of a woman, takes advantage of a, a man's wife. And so, so powerful that he can even do something to probably hide it, to cover it up. And he brings Uriah, he even gets him drunk to try and get him to go back to his house, but it, Uriah stays faithful. And so what does David do? Because he's scared and his plan's not working, he goes, well, my only option is to kill him and then marry his wife. Like, think about this. This, isn't a, this is a true story. This isn't a fiction story. This is a true story that actually happened. A king did this, and the chosen king, the anointed king, did this, kills a man through his servants. And I think it's just crazy. Man, I was, as I was just reading it, like, how blind does David have to be? You know, in verse 26 of 2 Samuel 11, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. 
And when the mourning was over, her crying, lamenting, grieving, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. How wicked do you have to be to do something like that? And he's like, man, oh, okay, I'll wait till she laments. I'll wait till she grieves. And then he marries her to still cover up his sin that he did to her. It's just crazy. It's mind-blowing. But then, if you look at 2 Samuel, God tells David through the prophet Nathan all these things, how he's going to judge him. And then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What just happened? And then we have this psalm, this beautiful psalm that becomes public for the blessing of all Christians throughout the rest of history. What's crazy is, did you see how simple that was? The evil that David did, and all he says is, I sinned against the Lord, and what does the Lord do? You will not die, and he forgives him. Doesn't that blow your minds? Like, think about doing that yourself. Think about doing that yourself. You would doubt your salvation. And all David says is, I have sinned against the Lord. And he goes, you're forgiven. Would you trust that? Would you really believe that you're forgiven? Even if you heard the audible voice of God? For me personally, I have doubted my salvation so much throughout my Christian life. And it's been a pain in my Christian life. But it's truly because I doubt God's word and I doubt the power of his salvation. And this psalm has been a huge blessing to me because it shows me that he was forgiven so easily for wicked, wicked things. And that's a blessing to me. That should be a blessing to you. Some of you have maybe done some of those things that he did. And I just want to tell you up front, if you've confessed, repented, rejoiced, you're forgiven. If you've confessed, repented, you're forgiven. And it's that simple. Because our hope is in the person and work of Jesus, not ourselves. And the reason why we doubt our salvations and the re reason why I doubt my salvation is because I'm putting my hope and my trust in myself, not in Jesus. So I would just encourage you, if any of you are doubters or even if you're not, when you sin, turn to Psalm 51 and let us learn how to come to God. Let us learn how to confess our sins to God and let us trust in that confession and let us trust in the saving power of our God. I know that probably felt like a mini sermon right there, but now we're starting. All right, I got three points for us. Point number one, as we're walking through Psalm 51, is call upon the character of God. And then point number two is confess and ask for cleansing. And point number three, confess, rejoice, and speak. So the three points, point number one, call upon the character of God. Point number two, confess and ask for cleansing. And point number three, confess, rejoice, and speak. So point number one comes right out of just verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. So before David comes to God and starts asking for forgiveness or asking for things, he's pleading with God based on his character, and he's saying, 
have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And that word steadfast love is his covenant-keeping love, the same love that he's given to the Israelites throughout the ages. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And he's made a covenant with his people to save them, to make them a people, give them a name. And so David's calling upon his covenant-keeping love, have mercy on me. And then he goes even further and says, according to your abundant mercy, like your overflowing mercy, your compassion, then he asks him these things to blot out, to wash, and to cleanse. And so when we come to God, this is probably more so for us than it is for God. Come to him remembering who he is, remembering his character, remembering that the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When the Israelites, I say this probably every time I preach, when the Israelites went to worship a different god, an idol. They built a golden calf and to worship them while God was speaking to Moses, their covenant representative. They were over here whoring after other gods. And you know what God wants to tell them when they did that? As he says, hey, tell the people of Israel, the Lord, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Isn't that amazing? Now hear that when you have sinned, and have sought God. The Lord, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When we come to Him and are humble and broken, come to Him remembering His covenant-keeping love. He has made a covenant with us, and He's steadfast with us. Amen? And then we can call upon His abundant mercy. According to your abundant mercy, He says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And so point number two, confess and ask for cleansing. Let's read end of verse one all the way through to 10 real quick. So it says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you did light in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jump down to 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. So what does David do? He calls upon the character of God, the name of God, and then he starts to confess and he asks for cleansing. And one of the things that we get, we get a little truth in here, a little secret in here in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. If you can, jump with me to 1 John chapter 1. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God loves 
truth. God loves when we're being honest with Him and being truthful with Him. And 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, 5 through 6, or 5 through 7, let's see. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. God delights in truth so much, and the way that we walk in the light as He is in the light is that we are actually truthful with Him, with who we are. And so that's why when David comes and he's confessing to the Lord, look at what he says. He uses three words for sin. He says, transgression, iniquity, sin. And then he talks about even how long he's been a sinner. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He knows that all around him is sin. All of who he is is basically sin. In his own DNA, he just lives and breathes sin. He is a sinner, totally in need of a Savior. And I know this kind of conversation for some people is like, hey, can we move past that? We got Jesus. Let's move past that. But we can't move past that because that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a Savior. And I know a lot, even myself included, I tend to look at the grace of God and let that make me neglect the truth of who I am apart from Him. But David here, he uses these three words for sin. He says, blot out my transgressions. And transgressions are a willful sinning, knowing that you've crossed the line, knowing that you've trespassed. So he's saying, blot out my transgressions, those sins that you know, for I know my transgressions. You know the sins that you've done willingly. You know the sins that you did yesterday that you shouldn't have done, but you gave into that temptation. It's like it stained us. And so he's asking God to cleanse and blot out my transgressions. And then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And that iniquity is like a... um, an out-of-joint socket. It doesn't, we don't work properly. We don't walk the way we're supposed to walk. So he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Basically, pop me back in the joint. Get me back there. He's not just asking for forgiveness, but he's asking for real change from God. And then he says, and cleanse me from my sin. Totally take out all of sin from me. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then he says a really startling thing, but I think that's very helpful. Verse 4, I used to have a problem with this verse a lot, but I've come to really enjoy it and love it and need it. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This guy, David, just, you know, committed adultery, killed a man, married her, probably didn't even care that she was lamenting, or at least it just feels that way, to cover up his own sin. And if you didn't notice or pay attention, God doesn't call him out through the prophet Nathan for about a year. Isn't that crazy? So David was hiding his sin 
for probably over a year because the baby was born before Nathan called him out. Isn't that crazy? Think about that. Think about, let's say, you doing that or me doing that and going a whole year without confessing it to God or confessing it to others. He's still going to church. He's still probably reading. He's still being king. He's still the anointed one. But how fake is that? And then what's crazy is it says, against you only have I sinned. No, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against you know, his people. He sinned against God. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his servants. He sinned against a lot of people. A lot of people get affected when people commit adultery. A lot of people get affected when people die. It's not just Uriah and Bathsheba. There's a ton of people he wronged and sinned against. But in this passage, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. I don't know, I had a problem with it for years because it felt just like a cop-out. It's like, what, is he not asking for forgiveness from these people? Did he not ask for forgiveness from his wife? But I do think, as I've come to really love this part of the text, is it actually helps you ask for forgiveness from those people more because you see the depravity of, of your sin and the, the wickedness of your sin even more. Because think about it. If you say, I've sinned against so-and-so, you might have some record of debt from them. So it doesn't feel as bad. Or if you sin against somebody else, well, they're just as bad. Bad. If you're comparing horizontally, the, the problem isn't as bad. Oh, yeah, he committed adultery, but a lot of people commit adultery. Oh, yeah, he's committed murder, but, you know, there's people that commit murder. Well, he didn't really do it. Somebody else did it for him. You can justify, but if you say, against you, God, I have sinned against you, well, God is perfect and good and holy and he is way down here, he fills that gap way worse. And it's actually appropriate, a good way to approach your sin that I have sinned against you, God. Too many times when we sin against people, we leave it at that. We sin against them. Like some of us are bitter towards people. That's a sin against God. Some of us probably avoided people this morning. That's a sin against God. And a sin against that person, but we have sinned against God, our Creator. We have done wrong to Him and not done what He's asked of us. We have sinned against Him, and Him only have we sinned, and done what is evil in His sight. And then it says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Basically, that what God says about us, that, you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that He's correct in that. Like, if He tends to judge us, well, he's correct in his judgment because we've sinned against him. And then I love how David, verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This for me is just helpful because it helps me just call out to God more as I'm confessing to him. My whole life has been sin. Apart from you, I can do nothing but sin. Apart from you, even from my first time I'm waking up, from the morning, from when I was born, I have sinned against you. I have not praised you as I ought. I have not brought you to mind as I should. I have neglected you. I have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is worthy of our worship and our praise every second. And so it's just helpful. We confess and we ask for cleansing. And then he goes on and asks for this cleansing again. Verse 7, he says, "'Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean.'" 
Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Right here, he's probably alluding to the cleansing ceremony of a leper. So a leper, you know, it's a skin disease. And they would purge them with hyssop. Because if you had leprosy, you'd have to be basically isolated, social distance, you know. You'd be unclean. And you'd not be able to come in to the community again until you were clean. And so David's giving us this picture that when we've sinned, especially his sin, it's like he feels it. It's on his skin. Everybody knows it. And it has cast him out of the presence of God. You know, like in 1 John you know, 1.5, it says, Walk in the light as he is in the light. And you'll have fellowship with one another. One thing that Lydia is really good at with our kids is when, they, when they've sinned and done wrong, we discipline them. And we tell them, if you walk in the light, you'll have fellowship with us. Right now, you've been walking in the darkness, but if you confess and repent, come back, you're in the light, you're in the fellowship. And it's really helpful because that's our lives as Christians. Our lives are full of sin, and so it should be full of repentance. And so David, for a year, was living in darkness. God calls him out, he repents, and quickly comes back into light. That's key. So any of you parents or any of you friends, if somebody confesses to you and repents, ask God for for forgiveness. Embrace them right away because that's what God does. It's not this long, drawn-out thing. How many of us, when we're counseling somebody and they've done some wicked thing, we want them to pay for it. We want them to feel the sin. We want them to feel the condemnation and the guilt, and then they can come back. They can't just come back just by saying, oh, please forgive me. But how wicked are we? Like, aren't you glad we're not God? Like, man, if I was God, I'd be done. Like, seriously, if I was God, I would be cast out. But praise be to God that he accepts us so quickly because of his son, and he's washing us clean. Walk in the light as he is in light. Be truthful. Be honest with him. Be humble. And you can quickly come back. Our lives are full of repentance. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You will no longer be cast out like the leper. You can come in as you confess. And God is the one that cleanses you. God is the priest that purges you. And then the last couple verses, verse 16 and 17 for you not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings, but he wants a broken heart and a contrite heart. That's what I would confess to you. How many of you are trying to give to God Bible reading or serving or giving to the poor, but don't have a broken heart, don't have a contrite heart, haven't come to him in a humble, submissive way? So I would just encourage you, regardless of where we're at, every day let us come to him with a broken heart, ready to receive his grace because we need it, knowing that we are born in sin and apart from him we can do nothing. And then the last thing, point three, man, we need to confess, rejoice, and speak. And so when we confess, we need to, right when we confess, we need to rejoice Because isn't it good? Like how many of us want to feel our condemnation? Like for me, when I've sinned, seriously, I'll ask God for forgiveness, but then I'll doubt that he's forgiven me. So I'll sit in my sin waiting till I feel that I've confessed properly or felt enough guilt 
to be able to turn to Him. Isn't that wicked? God says, confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you. And I'm going, no, I did that, but that's not good enough. Because that's not good enough for me. Isn't that crazy? Like, think about it. How foolish am I when I'm sitting in my sin, I'm asking God to forgive me and to save me and to change me, and I'm going, yeah, I don't think he is. I don't think he's going to do it. Why? Because I've sinned. Why do I think that he's not forgiven me? Because I've sinned. Why do I think I'm not saved? Is because I've sinned. Why do I think I'm not good enough? Is because I've sinned. Why do I think he's, I'm now cast out and I'm the leper that cannot come into his presence? Because I've sinned. But what got me into the faith from the beginning? It's by confessing and trusting in the person and work of Jesus. And that is it. That is it. So what did I do down the line? And I changed the rules. I changed the guidelines. And I made it about me and me alone. And now the way I stay in the faith is by me, not by God. I got in by him, but I stay in by me. And that is wicked and that is horrible. And I am foolish when I'm in my sin like that. And that's what the devil wants me to believe. That's what the devil wants me to think how I'm accepted by him or I stay in the faith is by me and me alone. It is not like that. And if any of you are struggling that way, please beat yourself up with the gospel. Beat it into your mind. Repent from those dumb and foolish thoughts that you're not accepted because of what you have done. Of course you're not accepted because of what you've done. You're accepted because of what Jesus has done. And it's so foolish for me to think that I'm going to be staying in this faith because now I'm good enough. Apart from Jesus, I'm the same person I was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Those wicked thoughts that I keep me up at night that I did when I was 10 years old or 7 years old, falling in or being taken advantage of, those things that keep me up at night, if I've confessed, I'm forgiven. But sometimes I think that those things are the things that are keeping me away from God. Those things are the things that he's now just now realizing and is going to shun me away and turn me away. But what we need to do, confess to God, call upon His abundant mercy to clean us, blot out our transgressions, wash us thoroughly from our iniquity, and cleanse us from sin, and believe that. Believe it. And what we need to do is rejoice. Turn real quick to, to Hebrews chapter 12. I think of this verse quite often as well. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So many of us cling to sin and beat ourselves up with it until we feel like we're good enough to turn. But what Scripture says is lay it aside, confess it, and turn away. Lay aside your sin that clings so closely, that weighs us down. Man, so many of us take weeks to come back to God to feel forgiven because you think that He's mad at you. He's not. He's not at all mad at you because He was mad at our sin and He's paid for that. So He has not turned His face away from our sins. He's actually dealt with it on His Son. And so what David says now in Psalm 51, 
starting in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Like, do you remember when you first got saved? How real your sin was to you, how broken you were over your sin, but how quickly you rejoiced and how thankful you were for God saving you? He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Man, we need that. We need to be restored for the joy of his salvation. And then it says, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And so I would encourage you, if any of you have sinned, confess, repent, rejoice, and speak. Talk to people about it. It says, then if you do this, God, if you blot out these things, he'll sing, he'll rejoice, the joy of salvation will be restored to him. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Why will sinners return to God? It's because they've seen the kindness of God through David's life. So many of us, when we're around non-believers, we try to be somebody we're not. And so they think Christians are hypocrites because they think Christians think we're supposed to be perfect and better than them, but we're not. And so when they see our sins, they go, ha, hypocrite, you can't even do what you say Christians are supposed to do. But what are Christians supposed to do? They're to repent and confess, walk in the light as he is in the light, knowing that they're sinners and knowing that we're not good enough. Amen? Like, and I'm not trying to make light of our pursuit of righteousness. We are called to be righteous. We are called to repent, turn from sin, and do what God calls us to do. But when we sin again, we do it again. And so our lives are constantly to be full of repentance because our lives are constantly full of us going astray. Turn to Him. And so when we talk to people and confess to non-believers, that's a blessing to them because they'll see the kindness of God. It says in Romans 2, 4, do you not know that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance? The kindness of the Lord, not the wrath of God, but the kindness of the Lord. I wanted to share this passage, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 through 22. It says, this is really cool. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols, overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Amen? And lastly, what I want to look at, at the end of Psalm 51. So David is our 
is Israel's covenant representative of this Davidic covenant. That God made a covenant with his people. David's the king, the anointed king. He has sinned. God forgives him. And he prays this prayer. But it's now also for the congregation to be blessed by. But then he also goes, because this is his personal psalm as well, he goes and prays for Israel and for the church, for the believers. Verse 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What's really cool is that God answered that prayer and God's been answering that prayer for all of mankind. Do good to Zion. Do good to your people. He's been good to us. He's been patient towards us. He's been kind towards us. And one thing that I want to point out in the story of 2 Samuel is when David asked for forgiveness, I have sinned against the Lord. I mean, he didn't even ask in that. He just said, I sinned against the Lord. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Somebody did die. Somebody did suffer a penalty, and it was his son. But in our story, there is a son of David that comes to die for us because of David's sin, because of our sin. And that son of David is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come to sit on the throne forever. And through that death, because David's throne, he brought wickedness into that. But Jesus pays the penalty and now is paid all of our sins, wash us away and is cleansing us as we confess, confess to him and is seated on the throne forever. Amen? There is a son that died. That's Jesus. And there is a son that's also seated on the throne and that's Jesus. Let's worship him. Let's confess to him. Let's praise him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your, your plan of redemption. We thank you for your gift of your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being so kind to us, for being so gracious to us. Though we are sinners in need of grace, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? It is you, Jesus. Only you can save us. Only you can change us. Only you can cleanse us and bring us into a relationship with you truly. Bulls and goats will never take away the stain of sin. Only your blood. Please forgive us as we come confessing to you. And please accept our worship. We love you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.